You are listening to U of M Radio on your Historic Dial podcast, and this is Episode 3, Native American Heritage with the Sioux Treaty. Hello, Karen here at University Archives, and today we are continuing our theme around Native American Heritage Month with an episode of the program, Tales of Minnesota! The Minnesota University of the Air presents another in the new series of half-hour radio dramatizations based on a century and a half of heroic pioneering and dedicated to the people of Minnesota in this historic year of their territorial centennial. Based on fact and carefully documented, Tales of Minnesota brings you stories of high adventure, of bold men and courageous women, of the pioneers who built this state out of virgin wilderness. Today, a story of tragedy, of misunderstanding and double-dealing. The tale of how the once great nation of the Dakota, the Buffalo Hunters, was displaced from its lands by the white man. The tale of the Sioux Treaty. This program, as you heard, was in celebration of Minnesota's territorial celebration. In fact, it was broadcast in 1949, the territorial centennial but the announcer says a century and a half of history because the program includes stories of explorers and pioneers that came before. Tales of Minnesota, in total, was 13 episodes on a variety of Minnesota history topics, from flour milling to the Hinckley Fire of 1894 to Scandinavian immigration and more. Today we focus on the Sioux Treaty. Here is the narrator describing the atmosphere leading up to this treaty. In 1851, the few thousand white frontiersmen in the new territory of Minnesota were confined to a narrow triangle enclosed by the Mississippi and the St. Croix. For many years, the pressure against legislative barriers that separated the whites from the vast territory of the Sioux had been increasing. It had been discussed by legislators and lobbyists in congressional anterooms. Powwows had been held with the Sioux chieftains on the open prairie. Now the time was ripe. The format of the program was a mix of narrated historical documentary with reenactments by the University Radio Guild, followed by contemporary interviews or discussions. In the interest of keeping our podcast episodes more concise and the availability of these full half-hour episodes online soon, I wanted to focus more on highlighting the contemporary interviews at the end of the program. However, I would be remiss to not include at least a glimpse of the reenactments done by the Radio Guild and the stereotypes used within the dramatization. These segments present a startling disconnect between the Guild's racial caricature of Native American speech and the program's overall interest in highlighting historical mistreatment, reparation attempts, and the contemporary culture's progress. Here we will listen to the Guild's interpretation of Little Crow, followed by Red Iron, speaking to the Native American tribes after the presentation of the treaty. Let Little Crow speak. I come only to listen to your counsel and to take back word to my people. But hear me, I have seen the white man's coming. I live close to his great settlement. Fourteen winter ago, he made a treaty for land east of Great River. He has not paid all he promised yet. Now, now he wants more land. 
make more promise. White man like river. When he come first in drops and trickle, we laugh at him. But trickle become stream, and stream become river, flood that sweep all before it. That is white man. And what we do, Red Eye? Brothers, brothers, Dakota cannot stand against flood. White man can take our land from us. This not right. This not good. But he can take our land. We must accept terms of his treaty now, before he is even stronger. Yes, 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 my brothers. We must do what we can to save our nation. We must take their money and use it to learn white man way of life. We must fight to keep it from whiskey traders who steal strength of our warriors. We must do what we can. The story and reenactments continue with the signing of the treaty and a second paper, known as the Trader's Paper, not translated or discussed at the meeting which held the Native Americans to a large debt, created by only a few individuals of the tribes for over $200,000 owed to a few traders. The years that followed included selling more of their own already small reservation land and remaining deep in debt. On top of that, a string of harsh winters did not provide good farming crops, and purchasing provisions from settlers led to even more debt. The rest of the program is Northrop Dawson discussing the attempts at reparations by the government and clips from the documentary unit's trip to Morton in October of 1948, where they visited one of the few remaining Sioux settlements in Minnesota and talked with members of the community, providing an authentic voice not heard in the dramatizations. We asked them first to tell us something of how the Indian lived before the coming of the white man. And here, in the words of Harry Lawrence, is the old, old story, handed down by word of mouth over many generations. About how the Indian used to live in the olden times before the white man came. They live on mostly wild games, and, and they got everything they want, just like a paradise. Everything grows and everything, all the wild animals are here. Everything they need is there in this country. Everywhere you look, you see deer, buffaloes, parachickens, pheasants, and everything there. So that's how easy it is for the Indians to live before the white man come. By the time of the Sioux Treaty, and even before, the plentiful game, which was the old means of livelihood of the Sioux, had gradually dwindled. After helping the Indian destroy what little was left, the white man took away his hunting grounds and in return gave him a few pitiful acres of land. The Sioux were given two alternatives, either start farming or move west. And this was a difficult adjustment for the proud Sioux to make because they weren't by nature farmers. But let's let Sam Bluestone tell it. The original Sioux is not a farmer, but a hunter from his times on. So up until that time, the Indian knew nothing about farming. All they did was plant little corn, and they used that as food, mixed within with their meats and so forth. After the outbreak of 1862 and the confiscation of the tribal lands, the Sioux were without a home in Minnesota. 
Still, some remained, living any way they could. At various times through the years, the federal government made half-hearted attempts to settle these remaining Sioux families on small pieces of land. And up until 1934, they were left to scrape what living they could from pitifully inadequate acreage. But in that year, 1934, the Sioux were given the first substantial aid in three generations through the passage of the Reorganization Act. We took this up and managed to get a chartered community settlement. And from there on, we had to borrow money from the government, $10,000, and divide it individually to those who want to do their farming on their lands. From then on, we, we worked hard on the farms the best we could with what horses we had and so on. And, and up until today, most of them have tractors and are doing good. Another step toward redress of the Indian grievances was the Indian Claims Commission Act of 1946. Under this act, the long-standing claims of the Minnesota Sioux against the government can now be submitted to an Indian Claims Commission for reconsideration and definite action. A while back, I understood or heard that the government released us and said that we could fight the government, not with bows and arrows, nor with gunpowder, but by law. And that's what we're about to do now. In the future, I think, if the white man let the Indians not to look down on them, but give them opportunity to show what they can do, I think the Indians will become self-supporting. Here we got a bright future if the white man give us what belongs to us. Our future generations going to make good, and I bet on that too. Well, there's the story. It's not complete by any means, while the Sioux of Minnesota still live in poverty, still haunted by one act of violence long since paid for by succeeding generations. If we really believe what we say about freedom and equality, it should certainly apply now to the Indian, the first American. Tales of Minnesota, along with the University Reports to the People, a program we didn't hear today, came as a result of KUOM feeling a responsibility to share more widely across the state with its unique educational purpose and university resources at hand. Through a statewide program service, they made the state's history and the university's current events available free of charge to 20 stations in Minnesota. Stations as far-reaching as Albert Lee, Mankato, Wilmer, Fergus Falls, and Duluth, just to name a few. That's all for this episode. I look forward to listening in with you next time on one of our earliest digitized programs. Thanks for tuning in. The U of M Radio on your Historic Dial podcast is produced every other week for your enjoyment. Subscribe or download on iTunes or Google Play so you don't miss another moment of Historic Minnesota Radio. If you enjoy our clips and want to hear or learn more, go to www.lib.umn.edu slash uarchives and search KUOM in the collections guides. Digitization of University Archives recordings was financed in part with funds provided by the state of Minnesota from the Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund through the Minnesota Historical Society.